Psalm 29 this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm chapter 29 this morning. Isn't it good to gather together as God's people uh, throughout the week? We get run down by various things that are happening throughout our lives. It's good to sing, to read the word together, to fellowship with one another. And now open up the word and sit underneath the authority of the word as God speaks to us. This morning through Psalm 29, as we continue our series, Gospeling the Heart. And we're looking over four big truths about God and how that is good news for us today. As I said last week, most of these truths are not new to us. But as we know, often familiarity breeds apathy. So we want to make sure that that doesn't happen to us. And we want to reacquaint ourselves with these truths saturating our lives and the good news that we find in them. And so this morning we come to Psalm 29 where David exalts God for his glory. Follow along as I read starting in verse 1. David writes, Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The, glo- the God of glory thunders. The Lord above the vast water. The vo- lo- voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. And in his temple all cry glory. Here in his word, God meets us and makes himself known to us. So let's take a moment to express our gratitude to him for it. Father, this morning we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that in these words here on this page, you reveal yourself. And this morning we see that you reveal yourself as a glorious God. And while this truth is something we've heard, many of us growing up over and over again, that you are filled with glory, sometimes we lose that idea. We lose that concept and that truth and we get overwhelmed with, seeking our own glory and giving glory to others. And so this morning, as we look into your word, remind us once again of your glory. Remind us of who we are as sinful, broken human beings in need of your grace. I ask all of this in your name. Amen. Excuse me. What are you most afraid of? What's that one thing in your life that causes your knees to shake, go weak? What's the thing that starts the, uh, the sweaty palms or the stomach churning? What's that one thing that you're most afraid of? Some of you know that I suffer from aviophobia or simply known as the fear of flying. I don't like to fly. Uh, And it's not my fault. It might seem ridiculous, but really it's not my fault that I have this fear. I blame it all on my friend Jeremy Lingle. Some of you know Jeremy. Jeremy and I were on a missions trip to Mexico in high school. 
And the flight from Chicago to Arizona was fine. Uh, it was great. Everything was good. Well, then from Arizona, from Phoenix down into Mexico, we took this smaller plane. And Jeremy, who I thought was my best friend at that time, uh, decided like every five minutes to ask me, did you hear that? I don't think that's supposed to happen. What's going on? And by the end, well, actually not by the end, but like five, ten minutes into the flight, like I was just white as a ghost, sweating, you know, the cold sweats. I was like, just get me off this thing. And ever since that point, I've just, I've hated to fly. I'll try to do whatever I can to drive somewhere and not fly. I do fly if I have to, if I'm forced to. Some of you also know that my wife, Megan, suffers from lilaps phobia. Lilaphobia, something like that. Or the fear of tornadoes. She hates tornadoes. And we're fairly certain that our daughter Kara suffers from it as well, likely influenced by her mother. Whenever there's a sign of a tornado, something in the news, uh, Megan starts watching her app like a hawk. And now Karis has started to do that. Like she'll sit there in front of the TV or she'll grab our phone if she sees the weather starts to get bad. Is there a tornado? What's the weather going to be like? And she is just fearful. Of course, we all know that Matt suffers from hemophobia, fear of blood. And with the exception of one person in this world, Chuck Norris, we're all afraid of something. Chuck is not afraid of anything. Whether it's due to traumatic experiences in our upbringing or just bad luck, most of us have fears that are sometimes classified as irrational. Anyone here suffer from ablutophobia? <laughs> it's hard to pronounce. Ablut, especially with allergies. Ablutophobia, or the fear of bathing or washing? <laughs> Hopefully not. Maybe you suffer from one of the most convenient phobias, ergophobia, the fear of work. Put that one in your, uh, in your basket for later, telling your, your, uh, your boss you've just gotten that phobia. Some might have the fear of losing hair. Anyone? Nope, not the guys in the back, back right, my back right. Perhaps the best of all phobias is the fear of belly buttons. What in the world? Fear of belly buttons, I found that one, whatever. Well, we can all laugh at the different phobias that we find uh, in the world, the truth is, as human beings, all of us suffer from one specific fear. One sp- specific fear that often is paralyzing for us. The fear of man. Ed Welch, in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, notes that the fear of man has many symptoms. Susceptibility to peer pressure, needing something from a spouse, a concern with self-esteem, Being overcommitted because we can't say no. Fear of being exposed. Small lies to make ourselves look good. People making us jealous, angry, depressed, or anxious. Maybe it's avoiding people and comparing ourselves with others. Any of those symptoms sound familiar to your experience? Maybe you're susceptible to peer pressure. Uh, You need something from your spouse, affirmation in some way. If If we're honest with ourselves, all of us tend to crave approval or affirmation from other people. We fear their rejection, whether it's our boss, our coworkers, 
Even our neighbors, our, our father, our mother, our sibling, our spouse, our children, each of, one of us at our very core of our heart lies this propensity, propensity to gain acceptance from those around us, to gain approval from those around us. We often feel like we have to have some type of validation for what we're doing and who we are. So as a result, we're controlled by those perceptions that others have of us. We're afraid of what others say or think. Our culture tries to then overcome this problem by finding ways to bolster our self-esteem. Tim Chester writes, This actually, though, compounds the problem. We become dependent on whatever or whoever will boost our self-esteem. In reality, low self-esteem is just thwarted pride. We don't have the status we think we deserve, and so we have elevated desires that are often good in themselves, a desire for love, affirmation, or respect, but we, we raise those to the level of needs without which we, could, we, we think we cannot be whole. So we, we raise these desires for love and affirmation to the point where if we don't have that, we can't be whole or our identity is changed as a human being. Again, as we acknowledged last week, these actions, this fear of man flows from our beliefs. When we get right down to it, beneath the fear of man lies a root of unbelief in our heart. When we seek the approval of others, we're at root believing or disbelieving something about God, who he is or what he has done for us. Now again, we, we wouldn't say that in those moments of fear and anxiety. We wouldn't say we are believing a lie about God, that we are wagging our finger in God's face. We're calling him a liar because we crave the attention of those around us. But at root, we are believing in those moments where we're suffocated by the fear of man. We're believing that God's view of us matters less than those around us. God's view is not as important as our boss, co-worker, spouse. So then what do we do about this unbelief? Last week, we looked at the unbelief that we are in control of our life. And God isn't in control. Masked in anxiety or uh, frustration over various things that happen. Well, what do we do about this unbelief? This fear of man. The susceptibility to fall into peer pressure. Well, again, we gospel our hearts. We apply the gospel, that good news concerning who God is and what he has done in Christ, and we close the gap between what we believe about God and how we act, what we do. And we do so by believing, big truth number two, that God is glorious. In other words, we turn our attention away from those right around us and to, to looking at the one who has created us and it truthfully speaks a better word about us as his image bearers. And so it's then that we begin to understand that God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Our God is glorious, spoken a better word about us as his image bearers, so we don't have to fear others. And so you see, it's this truth that God is glorious that we can then understand and rest from all our efforts to win approval and acceptance from others. And we can rest in the acceptance in Christ. Here in Psalm 29, David helps us by grabbing our attention and fixing it on God and his glory. He does so through a thunderstorm. 
He takes what we might cause some of us to fear and shows us how to worship God in all of his glory through the acts of nature. So first we notice here in these verses, in verses 1 through 2, a call to ascribe glory to God, a call to worship. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. David begins by urging the heavenly beings, the sons of God or the angels to give or attribute glory and strength to the Lord. For this is, in fact, what they were created to do. As we see throughout scriptures, the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 6 that the angels sing one, one calling to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his what? His glory. Angels magnify God for who he is himself and for his glory. And just like angels, we also were created to magnify our God. The truth is we are designed to be attracted to glory. So this call from the psalmist here to the angels or the heavenly beings to ascribe glory is also an appeal to us as human beings to carry out what we were created for. We are hardwired for glory. We love to both give the truth is, we also love to receive glory. Most of us, again, have heard this before. The chief end of man is what? To glorify God. But what does that really mean? What is glory? What does it mean to be glorious? We've all at least heard, if not said it ourselves, that sunset was glorious. But what do we, what do we mean by that? One author writes, the modern idea of something being glorious is more closely related to the idea of greatness. When we say something is glorious, we mean that we get delight from it. It is big. We might even just mean that it is really great. It's wonderful. It's delightful, completely enjoyable. Sometimes we use the word just to say that something is really, really good. That steak was glorious. But God is not great the way a steak is great. God is not glorious in the same way that a sunset might be glorious. You see, the idea that we have from the Hebrew here of glory is more closely related to the idea of a heaviness or a, a weight that God, that God has. Not a physical weight, but rather the importance or the gravity of that he has, the influence he has over all created things. For example, our boss carries more weight than our co-workers. Jonathan Dodson, a pastor, writes or defines glorious as possessing consummate worth, possessing beauty, virtue, and excellence. So then when we are told by David to ascribe glory to the Lord, we are to acknowledge that God alone possesses worth, that there is a weight to God like no other being. In fact, this is all the more emphasized when we see at the end of that first line in verse 1, and then also on the third line, Lord in all capital letters. This is the word that the Old Testament people of God would not even spell out or say completely because of the weight of God's name. Yahweh, I am. And so this call from David to worship 
or to literally bow down or prostrate oneself is to be an active response to the weight, the glory of Yahweh. The splendor and majesty, the glory of the Lord. God's glory calls forth a response from his created things. We stand up and cheer as the Badgers score a touchdown or as the Packers, hopefully this afternoon, score a lot of touchdowns. Why? Well, because we, as human beings, were created as physical and emotional beings. And so David assumes that here. He assumes that there will be a physical and emotional response from us to the glory, the weight, the gravity that God has. So I think at this point we have to ask ourselves, are we people who ascribe, we attribute glory or weight to God that he alone deserves? And do we do it in the everyday moments of life? Certainly giving glory to God is easy for us to say. That is, until that moment in the boardroom when our boss is looking for us to give him the numbers he wants to hear. And you know his approval will gain you a better position in the company. Or maybe it's that moment when you just know that all those young mothers that you're sitting around at the park with, they're homeschool mothers. They only feed their kids organic food. They work out every single day, and they even have time to run their own Etsy. Isn't it in those moments when we're tempted to seek others' approval? Again, whether it's the boss or the friends, we seek their approval. We give them weight in our lives. We give them undue importance. So just think of this for a moment. Who in your life do you want their approval? Who in your life do you want their approval? That might be a relatively small list of people, possibly including your parents, your spouse, your boss, your friends. But that small list could be crippling for us, couldn't it? If each day we live seeking their approval, each day becomes a quest for the impossible. It's impossible to fully gain their acceptance or approval, especially if it's a full list of people. Father will approve of us for one thing, but the spouse another. Our boss wants us to do this, but our children really want us to be at home or at their ball games. But now answer this question. Who in your life do you not want their disapproval? Who in your life do you not want their disapproval? This could be a fairly large list for us. For instance, someone lays on the horn for you to go at the green light because you've sat there for the past 15 seconds staring off into space. That immediately irritates you. You start to feel this, oh, they're disapproving of the way I drive. How about your neighbors? Ever mowed your lawn just to appease your neighbors? You would hate for them to disapprove of you. The list could go on and on of people that we don't want their disapproval. But the bottom line is we can never meet everyone's expectations. And on top of that, we weren't created to do so. We weren't created to give glory to our boss. We weren't created to give glory to our spouse, our parents, to that person laying on the horn behind us. We were created to give glory to our creator, our creator alone, period. So, David here calls us 
to ascribe glory to the one who alone deserves glory. But then as we go into verses 3 through 9, he shows us God's glory. He shows us in a vivid display as he paints a picture of this awe-inspiring thunderstorm and assigns the voice of the Lord as the center of our worship. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The glory, the God of glory thunders. The Lord above the vast water. The voice of the Lord in power. We can read all the way down through verse 9. Have you ever just stood out in the middle of a thunderstorm and watched it come in? You slowly begin to hear that rhythmic pitter-patter of the rain. It starts getting harder and harder on the roof of your house. It gets faster and faster. Then you start seeing the flashes of lightning in the distance. And then with a crack, it seems like it just hits that tree right in the middle of your front yard. Then you hear the thunder rolling in from a distance. Soon it starts to rattle your windows. Some of us love what we call the beauty of a thunderstorm. Some of us are simply afraid and hiding in a basement. But this is what David paints for us in these verses. This thunderstorm rolling in. So with the stroke of his Brush, he exclaims the breadth of God's glory. It's above the waters, above the vast waters. He views this thunderstorm. He sees the lightning striking across the wave-tossed Mediterranean Sea, a sea that was known for a mighty force whose powerful waves could cause great destruction. And so David sees this turbulence the storm creates in the water, and as far as I can see, and he says, this is like the glory of Yahweh. The glory of God, the glory of God is even far superior. It's above the vast waters. It's far superior to the, the terrible forces of the sea. In verse 4, he simply describes the voice of the Lord as full of pl- power and splendor. It's so powerful that it is like lightning that breaks the cedars. It shatters the cedars of Lebanon, those cedars that are known for their, again, strength. But God's power breaks them like little toothpicks. God's voice makes Lebanon skip like a calf. The thunderstorm is so strong that it shakes the earth. Later we read, it shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. He says, the voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire with the cracks of lightning. It's so strong, there's a little humor here, that it it makes deers give birth. The thunderstorm is so strong, the deer start giving birth. And it strips the woodlands, the forest, bare. We hear the splendor and power of a thunderstorm, but David attributes this splendor and power not to the thunderstorm itself, but to the voice of the Lord, overshadowing the strength of the storm. His voice is amazing, it's beautiful, it's excellent. It has weight to it. Yet, we diminish this glory. We diminish this glory when we give weight to others and their thoughts about us, don't we? I mean, what did she mean by that comment? If I'm going to keep up with the Joneses, I've got to get the latest, you name it. We have to ask ourselves, in what ways am I giving glory to others rather than God? But then, at the end of verse 9, David shows us where true glory resides. 
he writes, in his temple all cry glory. You can almost picture that David's sitting there watching this thunderstorm as it ends and he exclaims, wow, that's amazing. Not only what the angels cry out, but what all creation cries out is this glory. This is the response that Yahweh, the great I am, deserves. So David begins with ascribe to the Lord glory. And now at the climax or the crescendo of this song, we have it's in his temple all cry out glory. Did you see that? That was incredible. In the words of Dash from the Incredibles, that was totally wicked. But remember, his awe, his amazement is not at the thunderstorm. This awe, this worship because of God and his glory, this giving worth, giving, attributing beauty to God is ultimately because of God's presence. Because God makes himself known to his people that he's created. In his temple, all cry glory. If we were to rightly understand what the temple meant for the people of God that David is writing to here in the Old Testament, we would understand that this was the dwelling place of the Lord. See, what David is saying here is that in God's presence, in the presence of power and majesty, all cry glory. All the beauty and splendor of God displayed throughout his creation is only a slight glimpse of God's glory. It's not until we are in his presence do we see the fullness of his glory. And then we know as we continue up throughout God's story, it's not until Christ, the voice of the Lord or the word in flesh, dwells with us full of grace and truth. It's not until he steps onto the scene that we're able to see the full glory of God. The author of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, states it like this. He is, as Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Paul, to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, write these words. For God who said, let, sh let light shine out of darkness. So he's recounting the creation scene. Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory. And where do we find this knowledge of God's glory? In the face of Jesus Christ. Christ embodies the full glory of God. You might remember back in the Old Testament, when Moses asked God to show him his glory. Remember what God did? Turn to Exodus 33 with me real quick. The end of Exodus 33, actually the middle, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, Look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now, if I have indeed found favor with you, again, this is Moses talking to Yahweh. Please teach me your ways and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. And he replied, that is God, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. 
Oh, if your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all other people on the face of the earth. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by, your na- by name. Then Moses said, please, please let me see your glory. He said, it's God speaking now to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name, the Lord, again, all capital letters, Yahweh, before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face you will not see. You see, when Moses pleads with God to show him his glory, God only allows him to see his back as he hides him in the crevice of the rock. God's glory was unable to be viewed by Moses. But the New Testament tells us in Christ, we have seen the glory of God. In Christ, we see in the face of Jesus Christ, we see God's glory. So the answer to the, the fear of man is a fear of God, a big view of God and beholding his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. For it's Christ who has given the glory to the Father that we have failed to give. It's Christ, the, the perfect temple, the word, the voice of the Lord in the flesh. It's Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, who has taken up residence within us, within us who are sinful human beings. He set, we've been set on giving glory to other created things, yet Christ comes and redeems us. And at the cross, God is most glorified. For at the cross is where divine justice and divine mercy meet to redeem us as sinful human beings. And Jesus glorifies our holy creator. God's glory, writes Dave Harvey, is his honor, his esteem, his mind-blowing perfection, his incomprehensible value is embodied in flesh and blood in the person of Jesus. This is where God's glory gathers to love, to ascribe the glory that comes from God means we love the person of Jesus. So we can say God is glorious so we don't have to fear others because we know Jesus has secured the Father's full approval of us. We cannot get any more approval. We cannot have any more acceptance outside of Jesus Christ. And so friend, This morning, each one of us are approval chasers. We run after acceptance, yet we have acceptance in Christ. We have acceptance from the Father through the blood of Christ. If you're here this morning and have yet to turn to faith in Christ, the good news for You today is that in Jesus, you can have all the acceptance. You can have all the approval you will ever need in Christ. Since each one of us has sinned, we've 
fallen short of God's glory, Paul tells us. We all have fallen short. So there's a penalty for that. Death. But Christ has taken that penalty upon himself. The one who was fully human, but yet fully God, paid that penalty on our behalf. So the good news for us is that forgiveness and acceptance is found in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's grasp a hold of this truth this morning. That Jesus has secured the Father's full approval. We cannot get any more. Our approval chasing, our approval searching, our, our wanting and desiring acceptance from others is useless. It's a quest that's impossible to fully reach the end. But yet in Jesus Christ, we have all the acceptance. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is glorious, so you don't have to seek the approval of your boss, the acceptance of your spouse to be truly God's child. Many of us have grown up in an environment that seemed to be pushing this. Look, look out at the world around you and what their view is of you is very important. What others say about you, whether you are a holy, you're a, a good Christian. And so if you want to be that, you don't go here, you don't do this, you don't say this. We grew up in an environment where Acceptance and approval by others was so important for us. We grew up in an environment where our last name mattered to people. You were a Loggins, and so that mattered. You're an Elkins, you're a Redbird, you're a Nassit. Whatever name you have, that meant something to someone. And so we tried to live up to those names. But God in his glory says, I have, in the face of Jesus Christ, I have given you full acceptance. I have given you all the approval that you need. You don't have to fear others. God is glorious. And in the face of Jesus Christ, his glory has not only been revealed to us, but then by the Spirit, his glory resides in us. So we are called his temple. So what David writes in Psalm 29, in his temple, all cry glory. As we fast forward to the New Testament and the Spirit takes residence in us, in his temple, in his church, all cry glory glory. We as the church should be that resounding voice that ascribes glory to God in all things. So may we step out into a thunderstorm and get drenched in God's glory. May we go out to this world around us crying out glory. There's full acceptance and approval by God in Jesus Christ. Our world searches for it. Our world searches for acceptance and approval. Yet they fail because they try to build it in themselves through self-esteem. How often are we trapped by that same act? And in doing so, we, we diminish God's glory. We say... God, you're glorious. Yet on Monday through Saturday, we give glory to others. We say, 
Wife, you're glorious. Boss, you're glorious. God is glorious. So we don't have to fear others. God, this morning, I pray that through your word, you would continue to do your work in our hearts. And as we've seen your glory on display through this psalm, as we see it throughout your word, that you would, you would so overwhelm us with the weight, the worth that you have in this world as its creator. And then the beauty and worth that you have in our own lives, that that would, that would guard us from fear of man. You said that the fear of man is a snare. It's easy to get caught up in that. And so overwhelm us with the beauty of your glory so that the fear of man diminishes in our lives. That we can serve you from a position of full acceptance, of full approval. That we can stand here on Sunday mornings and worship you knowing that we have been fully accepted by you through your son. That we can go throughout the week in the boardroom, in the home, on the, at the park, wherever it might be, in the classroom, and we know that we have your full approval. We have been accepted because of Jesus. And live with that truth, over, overjoyed because of that truth. All again for your glory in this world, in your name. Amen.